following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. It's good to see you, and we are glad that you're here with us today. One of my favorite genres of book to read is the biography. I love a good biography, especially I love presidential biographies. I like the opportunity to get a look behind the scenes of influential and powerful people like presidents are. It's interesting to read about the early life of presidents often. It's fun to see what kind of family upbringing they had, what kind of obstacles they had to overcome early in life. I also enjoy reading a lot about the personal details. The more personal biography gets, the more I like it. And I like to hear about both the good and the bad to see both the character's strengths and the weaknesses of presidents. Biographies are engaging because you get to see the whole picture of a person's life. You get to see the goodness and the flaws. You get the chance to find out what really drives a person. Well, over the past few weeks, we've been taking a look at a biography in a sense. It's the biography of King David, which is found in the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel, And as we follow along with David's biography, we get to see his character's strengths and weaknesses. We get a chance to see what kind of obstacles David faced in life. We get to witness a man with a desire to follow God, but who experiences lots of struggle along the way because he lives in a fallen world with a heart that's still bent towards sin. And as we've mentioned over the past few weeks, David is a man who has lots to teach us about what it looks like to be a human and a Christian. David's a man who has lots of positive qualities worthy of our emulation. He was passionate. He was humble, a great leader, a good friend. And he was faithful to God in many ways. But he was also a man who had lots of weaknesses. He was a murderer, an adulterer. He was a passive-aggressive father a leader who foolishly trusted in his own strength at times to the peril of the entire country, David shows us what it looks like to follow God in a fallen world. And this morning, we're going to be looking at an account from David's life from 1 Samuel chapter 25. And it's worth remembering that last week we saw David seeking to preserve life. In 1 Samuel 24, we see David spare Saul's life when he could have easily killed him and ascended to the throne. That was David displaying restraint and faithfulness to God. And now we get one chapter later in the chapter that we're about to look at, we see another side of David. The side of David that lacks restraint and that seeks to assert his own rights. In one chapter, we see David preserving life and following God. And here, just one chapter later, we see David seeking to take life and forgetting what it means to follow God. One day, we see a measured, obedient David And the next day we see an enraged, unreasonable David. And I wonder if you can relate with the swing in temperament and devotion that we see from David. I wonder if you've ever experienced this scenario in your own life where one day you're settled in what it means to follow God, maybe through trial and through suffering. And then the next day you're the same person, but you're angry and upset about what God seems to be doing in your life. Well, the biography of David paints an honest picture for us this morning of what it looks like to live in a fallen world where we don't always get what we want and we still have lots of sin in our hearts to deal with. 
And I am personally glad that this story is in the Bible. My hope is that God would use it to encourage us this morning. And we're going to do something a little different than we normally do today. Instead of reading the whole passage now, as we normally do, we're going to read the passage as we move through the sermon together. Reading three different portions as we look at three different points from the passage. And before we begin looking at those points and reading the passage, I want to set the stage for us this morning by thinking about a movie from 2002, one of my favorite movies, The Bourne Identity. The Bourne Identity, a great movie. It begins with Jason Bourne, played by Matt Damon. Many of you know he's floating in the ocean and he's picked up by fishermen. And you soon realize that uh, Bourne has no idea, uh, no clue who he is, no clue where he is, no clue as to why he possesses some pretty impressive combat skills. And the entire movie in some ways is about Jason Bourne piecing together different aspects of his life and figuring out exactly what's going on. The movie is about him slowly remembering who he is in a sense. And in much the same way, the story that we're about to read in 1 Samuel deals with this same problem. We're going to see that David forgets who he is. He forgets his mission. He forgets about God. And in a sense, we'll see David experiencing short-term memory loss. And that memory loss is going to have potential to bring lots of guilt and shame to David's life. David's memory loss is going to threaten to upend the mission that God has given him as the new king of Israel. David, as you might know, up to this point in the biography, has been an example of what it looks like to remember God in every situation. But in 1 Samuel 25, we see David completely forget God. He forgets who he is. And as a result, he takes matters into his own hands. We'll see that David's been insulted. And as a result of being insulted, he moves forward in anger to avenge himself of that insult. And unless he remembers who he is, unless he remembers who God is, unless he remembers what God has promised him, he is sure to run his life and potentially the entire trajectory of redemptive history into the ground. So this morning, as we move through our passage, I'd love for us to consider, what does it look like when we forget God? How is it that we're brought out of temporary memory loss, so to speak, that we often experience and remember once again who God is? Why is it so important for us to remember God and His promises in our daily life? As the story begins we see from verses 1 through 13 what it looks like to forget God. You follow along as I read verses 1 through 13. David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel, go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. 
When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. Well, at this point, when we pick up in the story, David is living in the wilderness, running from King Saul, who is hunting his life. And David and his men, about 600 in number at this point, are living in the caves in the southern portion of Israel. And as they lived in the caves, they were running from Saul. They weren't just twiddling their thumbs. They were busy doing good, David and his men. The wilderness was a high crime district. It was a place where bandits and robbers were eager to pillage and steal from the shepherds who took their sheep out to Rome. And so when David and his men weren't running from Saul, they were busy protecting the shepherds from these bandits, extending God's goodness and kindness to helpless shepherds by protecting them. Well, one of the benefactors of David's protection was a man named Nabal. The man was prominent and wealthy. The scripture says that he, had, uh, he was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And we see from the passage that David and his men protected Nabal's flock in the wilderness from bandits and robbers. In fact, David reminds Nabal that your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. And this was not a coincidence. David and his men were happy to extend God's kindness to Nabal and his shepherds by protecting them in the wilderness. We also see in our passage that it's sheep shearing time, a festive event in ancient Israel that included lots of hard work, but also lots of extravagant feasting. It was a traditional season of hospitality. And David knew that Nabal would be throwing some grand parties during this time. And David hoped that Nabal would be willing to share some of the feast. And so David sends 10 young men to ask Nabal for a handout. These young men remind Nabal of David's kindness in protecting his sheep. And you would expect Nabal to return David's kindness with a generous portion of what he had. But we see from the very beginning that Nabal, whose name literally means fool, F-O-O-L, fool, is a man who was harsh and badly behaved. We see these characteristics come out in his response to David's request. He rebukes and insults David's men for even asking for this favor. He rails, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed and give it to somebody that I don't know? Nabal's response is harsh and insulting, basically disregarding all the kindness that David showed him and then taking a personal stab at David himself. Well, you can see that things aren't turning out so good. David's men return with this report and David is not happy to say the least. He decides to take matters into his own hands. He yells to his men, strap on your swords. So David straps on his sword and he takes 400 of his men to go and take revenge on Nabal for his ungrateful insults. The situation is really spiring out of, out of control at this point in the story. David is outraged. He doesn't deserve this kind of treatment. You could make that argument. He's angry because his identity has been violated. 
So he sets out to avenge his feelings to get even with Nabal. And David isn't thinking clearly at this point in the passage. He has lost all sight of God, all sight of his calling. All he can see is revenge. These things are not going to turn out very well for anyone involved if the trajectory of the, at this point in the story holds. And it's tempting to think at this point that Nabal is the one that has a problem, right? I mean, after all, David and 400 of his men are coming for him. And while that may be true, it's David who has the bigger problem because he's forgotten his God. This is the trajectory that is taken when God's forgotten. David, in his passionate anger and rage, forgets about the God who's taken care of him and promises to meet his needs. David forgets this and he moves out in a state of God amnesia, so to speak, to take matters into his own hands. And this is not the same David we read about in the two chapters on either side of this passage. Because in chapters 24 and chapters 26 of 1 Samuel, we actually see David show great mercy to Saul in sparing his life and trusting in God. In those chapters, David's thinking is God-centered. That's how David acts in his better moments. In the moments where he remembers God, when he remembers God's provision and promise. But here in chapter 5, we see David temporarily forget God, losing all sense of his identity as one who is loved and cared for by him. And when we forget who God is, when we forget what he's promised you and I, we are prone to act just like David acts in this story. When we forget the beauty of God in our lives, we are prone to fall into deep ugliness. We see this ugliness rush forth in David's heart and life. When we forget God, when we have brief spells of God amnesia, then we're prone to follow David's trajectory. David forgot God in this situation and he was thrust into an angry rage in a quest to provide justice for himself. But we forget God and depending on our unique situations, we act much like David. Not the same action, but the same underlying problem. We forget God and we're set off into an angry rage when our children don't meet our standards. We are set off maybe into an angry rage when we forget God and all of a sudden we're hanging out in places we shouldn't be. Or we forget God and all of, our, all of a sudden our marriage becomes all about how our needs can be met. What am I getting from this relationship? And there's no sense of what I can give, how I can serve, how I can love. We forget God and instead of being generous with our time and our resources, we constantly think about how we can have more. When we forget God, when we forget who he is and what he's done for us, ugly things begin to happen. And what we desperately need in these times of ugliness is to be reminded of who God is and what he's done. David and us need to be snapped out of our God amnesia by being reminded of God's beauty. And that's exactly what we see happening as the story progresses. we we'll pick back up in verse 14. It says, But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us by night and by day, and all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and 500 or five and five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. 
And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, please forgive the trespasses of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and even in evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. In the lives of your enemies, shall, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Okay, so up to this point, the story is heading for a collision course with disaster. You actually see two fools in our passage. David, God's future chosen leader of Israel, is about to move out in rash anger and murder Nabal. And now, it wasn't right of Nabal to refuse David kindness and throw insults his way, but it didn't deserve this type of reaction from David. Nabal didn't deserve to be murdered for his harsh behavior. And if David moves forward with his murderous intent, it's going to throw off everything. David will defile his conscience. He'll bring guilt upon himself. And the integrity of his kingdom will be over before it even begins. Who's going to rescue David from the ugliness of this murderous rage against Nabal? Who can snap David out of it and remind him of God? Well, we see a beautiful discerning woman named Abigail come to the rescue. Abigail exhibits great wisdom in this passage. A good definition of wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. And this is what we see from Abigail. She is, in fact, the only character in this story who is exhibiting the skill of godly living. She hears the report from an unnamed servant and she jumps into action to save both Nabal and David. She wastes no time in preparing a feast for David. She's courageous in her actions of approaching David. She exhibits great humility and taking blame upon herself. And she shows great intelligence and grace by speaking truth to David. And here in this passage, we see a woman protecting the future of Israel, protecting the family line of Jesus, in many ways, protecting the whole world. As David is on a collision course for ruin and misery, Abigail humbly steps in front of David, a beautiful solitary figure, and reminds him of who God is and what he promised to give David. David had lost all sense of his identity as anointed king. He's on the verge of becoming another Saul. And Abigail steps in to rescue David and all of Israel by speaking God back into David's life. And this task took great courage on Abigail's part, if you think about it. She's living in a male-dominated world. And we see this woman take the initiative to stand up to David. She's living in a sword-dominated world. And here she is, a woman kneeling before David, completely defenseless, taking the blame for Nabal's foolishness upon herself. Great risks are being taken to remind David of God. And Abigail, beautiful in character and countenance, shocks David out of his plunge into the ugliness of sin. She recovers the beauty of God for David. 
And because of Abigail, David realizes again who he is, what he's doing, what life is for. She gives David the gift of seeing him for what he will one day be and reminds him of what God plans to make him. Abigail makes David beautiful again by reminding him of who God is and what he's promised. Abigail's actions in this passage remind me of a song you too sings called Grace. Abigail's really a picture of grace in this story. And in the song, you too um, sings of grace saying this, what once was hurt, what once was friction, what left a mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Well, in the story, beautiful Abigail intervenes and makes David beautiful again. And we need people like Abigail in our lives, you and I do. We need people in our lives that can make us beautiful again. People who are willing to step in and courage and humility to remind us of who God is when we've forgotten. To step in and pull us out of the ugliness of our sin. People in our lives who are able to see us for who we will one day become. To see the potential in us that God sees. We're meant to read of Abigail and desire her for ourselves. Abigail is a stop sign that keeps David from driving headlong into destruction. And the beauty of Abigail and character and countenance draws David out of his God amnesia. God sends David something beautiful to remind him and draw him back to faithfulness. And this beauty that meets us in the middle of the road of our ugly brokenness is sometimes a person. It's sometimes a person, a friend, a family member that steps in front of us when we're headlong towards destruction and says, stop, this is not who you are. This is not what God wants. But at other times, it can sometimes take the form of other beautiful things in this world. Maybe a song or a story, a sunset, the way that things fall perfectly providentially into place. The providence of God can oftentimes be beautiful enough to shock us out of our sin. And I wonder who or what in your life is calling you out of your God amnesia into a remembrance of God's goodness and care. Who is that in your life? Who has God mercifully placed in your path as an instrument to keep you from folly and to encourage your faith? And are you willing to listen? We also read this story and realize that we need to be people like Abigail in the lives of others. We need to emulate her characteristics. How is your life reminding others of who God is? When those around us have forgotten God, when they don't see themselves as a work of God's hand, do we step in and speak life and beauty and peace? And this takes courage, actually stepping forward to encourage or challenge another person. It takes humility, like Abigail had, approaching another person without a sense of superiority. It takes intelligence and grace as Abigail had, encouraging another in such a way that's appropriate for their situation and their context. Who in your sphere of influence needs to have God spoken back into their life? Maybe a family member, a friend, a neighbor. And what can happen as we begin to step forward and bring God's beauty back into people's view? Well, as we continue reading, we see what happens to David after Abigail brings him back to the recognition of God's care and love. In verse 32, we read this. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. 
Well, we see that David receives Abigail and we see that he thanks God for sending her. David recognizes that Abigail is a gift sent from God, sent to rescue David from plunging himself into miserable failure. And God uses Abigail as an instrument of preservation and protection for David. David recognizes this and praises God for sending such a rescuer into his life. Because of Abigail, David remembers who God is and what he's promised. Because of Abigail, David is kept from taking matters into his own hands. Kept back from guilt and shame. Kept from ruining the future of Israel. He's pointed back to trust and reliance on God to provide and work out what's best. Abigail comes and reminds David of who he really is. The future king of Israel. She reminds him that the actions he's about to take are not worthy of the future king. Abigail pleads with David to remember who he is. And it reminds me of a scene from my favorite Disney movie. Kids, I wonder what your favorite Disney movie is. Mine is definitely without question The Lion King. Love The Lion King. The original Lion King, not the redone one this past year. But the storyline reminds me so much of what we see play out in the scriptures, as most Disney stories actually do. In The Lion King, Simba, who's the rightful king, abandons his responsibility, and as a result, uh, disintegration happens back in the Pride Lands. You remember this. As long as Simba is gone, as long as he forgets who he really is, evil proliferates. But there's a beautiful scene in The Lion King where Mufasa, who has passed away, he's Simba's father, and in a dream, he reminds Simba of who he really is. And as a result of being reminded who he really is, it's kind of the catalyst that gives Simba the courage to head back home and fight against the evil that he finds there and restore and renew that place. And in much the same way, David is shocked back to life, reminded of his true identity by Abigail. She reminds David of who he is and how much God loves him. And as a result, David forsakes his plans and lives back into his true identity. And it's not unlike what we need to be reminded of who we are. Look, if you are in Christ this morning, if you've placed your faith in him, you are a co-heir. You are a son. You are a daughter of the king. And what would it look like for you and I to see ourselves the way that God sees us in Christ? If we remembered who we were, if we remembered that our lives are hidden in Jesus, it might encourage us to live into our identities, to take hold of who we truly are, to live into what God wants for us. Look, as we read this account in David's life, it is easy for us to identify with David. More often than not, we're the ones who've forgotten God. We're the ones who move out in the ugliness of our sin and our foolishness. We're the ones who need to be stopped and reminded of who God is and what he's promised to do for us. And as we read this account, we are strongly attracted or we're meant to be attracted to Abigail's discerning beauty, her courage, her humility, her ability to protect David and rescue him from hurting others and himself. Abigail is one who's placed in David's life as a type of savior. Someone who rescued him from himself and pointed him back to God. And that is what we all need here this morning, a rescuer. Somebody that is willing to come and step in front of us. A savior. 
someone to protect us and keep us from hurting ourselves and others around us. And because when left to ourselves, we're prone to forget God and his goodness, we're prone to follow our foolishness and to sin and misery, we desperately need a rescuer to come and remind us of who God is. One whose beauty can change our trajectory. One whose beauty can change our lives. One who intervenes so that we might experience joy. Look, David had Abigail, but we have someone even better. If I might say it this way, we've got a better Abigail. A better Abigail, a better rescuer, and his name is Jesus. And he was sent in order to step in front of us to remind us of who God is, pointing us back to a God who loves and cares for us. Jesus came to make us beautiful again. He came to speak God back into our lives. And that's good news for us this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you love us. Thankful for the way that you have come in order to step into this world and into our lives to point us towards the beauty, the goodness, the love and grace of our Father. We pray this morning that as you encourage us with the hope of the gospel, that you would change us from the inside out, that we might be those that live as sons and daughters of the King, that we might always have you in our minds and in our hearts, seeking to follow you and to love you and to love our neighbors. We pray that your spirit would do this in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.